Hello, and welcome to Sobercast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting Sobercast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Have a great day. Hi, everybody. My name is Dan, and by the grace of God and with the help of Alcoholics Anonymous, I can tell you that today I am a recovered alcoholic. My home group is the men's basic step study group. We meet on Thursday nights in Soquel. What else should I tell you about? Oh, yes. My sobriety date is sometime during the month of October in 1947. For those of you who don't have your calculators with you... (laughs) Last October, I celebrated my 47th anniversary of clean and sober. I'm sure glad that pleases you, because I have no idea at all of changing it. What else should I tell you about me? I should tell you, first of all, I think, uh, of how... Well, I feel rather ambivalent about this. Uh, Mac was the first person that contacted me, and uh, in a moment of weakness, I said yes. Uh, I'm uh, I'm not sure how good I feel about that. We'll see when this is over. But uh, I will tell you that I certainly feel honored and privileged to have this opportunity. Uh, Most of you, many of you have been here all day, haven't you? Have you had a good time? Has it been a good... Let's hear it. In 47 years, I've been to a few AA functions. And I can't remember one that I have seen uh, that displayed the kind of work, uh, the cooperation and the organization that I've seen here. I think it's just marvelous. And uh, I wish I had every one of the committee's names. I had a sheet with it on there one time, but I didn't get here with it. But you know who you are, and we certainly commend you. Now, I have some other housekeeping duties, too, I need to do. Uh, oh, yes, there is a uh, celebrity celebrity in the audience, and I don't think that uh, very many of you have been made aware of that fact. So uh, let me take care of that right now. Uh, uh, this lady... Uh, among other things, is celebrating her 18th anniversary in Alcoholics Anonymous uh, this week. Uh, What else can I tell you about her? Uh, If you can keep a secret, I will tell you uh, that she's a saint. I wouldn't tell her that, uh, but uh, she wears her halo very well. Uh, She hauls me around to these commitments that I make to people like Mac, and sees to it that I get there on time and looking pretty. And uh, if I was to be, uh, she's heard uh, any and all of these talks I give so many times uh, that if I was to be struck dumb, she could get up here and uh, do a better job of it than I will. Uh, oh yes, something else about her. Or she's celebrating her 18th anniversary this uh, week. And next month, she's celebrating with me our 13th wedding anniversary. Her name is Joanne, and I would like you to say hello to Joe. Joe, will you? I'll catch hell for that, but... uh, (laughs) The... uh, program that I saw uh, just says that he is the evening speaker. Uh, The invitation that I have and the one that I accepted uh, was an invitation 
to talk about the history of the three legacies of Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's what pleased me so much. Uh, those of you that have had to tell your uh, drinking stories publicly a few times will understand uh, that if you've been doing it for 47 years, you get pretty damn sick of it. And uh, it's, it's a pleasure to me to get to make a talk without having to do that. Uh, I hope you will uh, just accept and believe uh, that I am qualified uh, to be here. Uh, the fact that I drank, uh, I have been sober for 47 years, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that I drank at a different time and place than you did. And uh, by that same token, I came to a somewhat different Alcoholics Anonymous than you did. But that's all right. Uh, you see, the fact that I drank at a different time and place than you did, the fact that I became an alcoholic on illegal rut-gut bootleg whiskey, uh, I have learned that that makes absolutely no difference because if we are alcoholics of the same kind, and I am referring to the kind as described in chapter 3 of this book, if you're alcoholics of that kind, then alcohol does the same things to us. And it makes not one iota of difference uh, where we drank, when we drank, why we drank, with whom we drank, or what we drank. If it's alcohol, it's going to do the same things to us, isn't it? And by the same token, if we're alcohol, if we are alcoholics of this variety as described in chapter three here, then Alcoholics Anonymous surely is doing the same things for us. The evidence of that is that you and we are all here tonight. So that much and that's all for my qualifications. However, I am somewhat qualified, I think, and pleased to talk to you about the history of the three legacies of Alcoholics Anonymous because uh, the second and third legacies and Dan Crouch kind of grew up together in Alcoholics Anonymous. Thank God the first legacy was well in place before I got here. Uh, that's why I'm alive and well tonight. But I watched the second and the third legacies come into being, and uh, hopefully I'll have some stories about that uh, that perhaps will interest you that I can share with you. Uh, in riding up here this afternoon uh, to be with you folks, uh, God, I wish I could have recorded the talk I gave coming up here because... Uh, <laughs> That's the one I would really like for you to hear, and you probably won't. <laughs> but I did determine in rehearsing that little talk uh, that I was probably going to have to approach it from more than one angle. First of all, uh, to perhaps make it more interesting and palatable to you, I will try to make it a story. And uh, secondly... I will only be able to just briefly outline for you what is available to you in uh, three books of Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't tell you, did I, that I'm a book salesman. Uh, that's what I do. Uh, as we go along here, you'll see why. Uh, this book, Alcoholics Anonymous, and... This book that I call the history book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Alcoholic Anonymous comes of age. And this book, Dr. Bob and the Old Timers, which will tell you, just as this book gives you the history of AA, this book will tell you about a particular section of AA more than this book can. It will tell you about that phenomenal meetings, groups of Alcoholics Anonymous in Akron and Cleveland, Ohio. And again, I, I have to remind you, I was told 
uh, by the committee that by the time this candle is burned out that I must be finished. And so, uh, you see, uh, I will only be able uh, to give you perhaps just enough information uh, that you will want to uh, own uh, these books of history of Alcoholics Anonymous. And another approach that I'm going to have uh, to this, and it will be in all humility, but we will have to use the word I considerably because of the way I think I can best share it with you is to give you uh, some account uh, of my uh, terms of service. You see, I told you I came to a somewhat different Alcoholics Anonymous than you did. The Alcoholics Anonymous that I came to, uh, you did not volunteer. You were drafted. Uh, when your sponsor thought it was time, and you had a sponsor. If you didn't have a sponsor at your first meeting and when you arrived there, you did before you left. And it was a lifetime commitment. That's a tremendous, valuable thing that I think we have lost in Alcoholics Anonymous. But to get on with what I was about to tell you, you were drafted. When your sponsor said jump, you said how high. And when my sponsor informed me uh, that I was going to be a one of two people who was to represent my group at the first international conference in Cleveland, Ohio, where the second legacy of Alcoholics Anonymous was accepted by acclamation, I said, sure, how do I get there? <laughs> Let's talk a little bit first, though, about that first legacy of Alcoholics Anonymous. There are many stories, and I'm sure that you have heard most of them. And I trust and believe that they're all as accurate as they can be being passed down uh, by word of mouth. But the one I will give you is the one that I have reason to believe is accurate and the truth. And uh, if it conflicts with anything you've heard, then probably they're both right, okay? Uh, you see, we heard a good deal about it from the two people who read here tonight about what was to happen. I think it was real interesting that they pointed out the fact about Mother's Day because this is a fact that I don't think is very well known in Alcoholics Anonymous. Mother's Day was the anniversary day for the founding of Alcoholics Anonymous until the first international conference was held in 1950. There was a problem with having it on Mother's Day because it changed, the date changed every year. And then finally somebody woke up and said, we really should celebrate the anniversary on the date. And besides, it uh, made a lot of competition with mothers. Uh, on Mother's Day, so finally we did get around to accepting this date as the anniversary, but I thought you might like to know that. Now, as you know and as you heard here today, Alcoholics Anonymous began to come into being when on that Mother's Day Dr. Bob and Bill got together for the first time. You might be interested to know, if you don't already, uh, that in 1937, some two years after that meeting, they got together and inventoried as best they could between them the number of people that they knew was sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. And it was somewhere around the figure of 30. 
And two years later, in 1939, they again did an inventory, and it was somewhere close to the number of 200. And then two years later, in 1941, they took another inventory early in the year, and uh, it was something like 400. Now, 1941 was the, uh, the year that the Saturday Evening Post article, if you do not know, there was a periodical, we had magazines, periodicals, I hope that's the right word in those days, they were five-cent magazines, and they were uh, uh, read uh, by a majority of the people. Uh, there was one called Liberty, that was published weekly for five cents. Uh, there was another one called Collier's, and it was a five-cent publication. Uh, Liberty, Collier's, and then there was the Saturday Evening Post. Now, there had been an article in Liberty, and they had hoped uh, that getting some publicity in Liberty magazine uh, would help them uh, get the growth, get the word out that they needed. But for some reason, it fell totally flat, and there was hardly any response to it at all. But when the article came out in the Saturday Evening Post, it was done by a man who went from New York down to Akron and Cleveland and spent several weeks there because that's, you maybe also don't know that at that time there were really two groups of Alcoholics Anonymous. There was the Ohio group that met in Akron and Cleveland and they had tremendous success and uh, their program of staying sober uh, was a lot more spiritual uh, than the one in New York, uh, where there seemed to be uh, a good more deal, more liberal uh, thinking, and uh, not much growth and not much success. But anyway, this man went down and studied uh, what was happening in these groups, in these two groups in Ohio, and he came back and studied the New York group, and he wrote his uh, a two article. It appeared in two succeeding weeks in the Collier magazine. And shortly after that happened, they again took an inventory and they had 8,000 members of, that they have felt uh, were sober in Alcoholics Anonymous and they were scattered all over the then 48 states of this country. They were in California, they were in Texas, they were in Florida. They were all over. They were in Chicago. That was the first big city other than New York to get an AA group. The first man who got sober in Chicago went to Akron and lived for several weeks with those people in order to get to what he felt was a program that he could take back to Chicago and stay sober with. Anyway, during this period of time, the New York group had decided to withdraw from the Oxford group. And the Oxford group was still the group with which Akron and Cleveland was associated with. Now let me tell you a little bit about how that came into being, if I may. I told you it was a story, and you tell a story by saying once upon a time, don't you? And once upon a time, there was a man by the name of Roland, Roland Hazard, who was born into a very influential and prominent family in New Jersey. His father was a very prominent man, a very well-to-do man, and Roland had every advantage that a young man could have uh, coming uh, from that kind of a background. And there were great plans for Roland because he was an only son. 
They had high ideals and hopes and wishes for him, and it turned out that Roland was a drunk. Roland was an alcoholic, though we didn't have the word then to use. And everything that could possibly be done for Roland uh, was done. But for those of you who don't know, that was the Black Ages for an alcoholic in the most enlightened society that history has ever recorded. It was a moral issue. A moral issue. We amended the Constitution to try to deal with it. Now I'm talking about this century. But that's how it was. Even when I came, even in my drinking time, when I went to medicine, they said it wasn't anything they dealt with. And when I went to psychiatry, they were much shorter with me than that. And when I went to religion, they told me I was a sinner. And that didn't leave very many places for Roland and I to go. The concrete floor of the drunk tank or a straitjacket in a psych ward. And that's where Roland ended up many times. And his father heard about a psychiatrist in Switzerland who was doing tremendous things and helping people that other psychiatrists had not been helped. And Roland was shipped off to Switzerland. The, the psychiatrist there, the man's name was Young, spelled with a J. You've heard of him. Roland spent a good deal of time there in psychoanalysis. And when he started home, he didn't make it to the ship. He was drunk before he ever got on board. And he came back to the psychiatrist and he said, What is it about me? Why is it that I'm so different? Why is it that as hard as I I can't control this compulsion to drink. And the psychiatrist sat him down and said, Roland, you are not the only one. There are other people like you, and I have not been able to help them. Nor do I know of anyone that I can recommend you to that can help you. But I have known some of them to get and stay sober. And they've been able to do it because they tell me of a profound spiritual experience that they had. And I would suggest to you that that's what you should do and that's what you should go seek and try to find some place where you can learn about spiritual principles. And Roland found a group called the Oxford Group and became a very active member of that group. The Oxford group was a group of people who did most of their work in missions. They were not affiliated with any organized religion. And when Rowan got back to this country, he was working in some missions in the rather rough side of New York City. And one day there he was telling his story and a man by the name of Ebby was there and heard him. Ebby was a man from New England and he had come to New York to visit with his friend uh, Bill Wilson. They had grown up together. And every time that Ebby came to New York he always got on a terrible drunk. But this time before he did, he stopped at this mission and he heard Roland talk and he called his friend Bill Wilson over in Brooklyn and asked him if he could come visit him that he had just heard some very startling things. Well, Bill was terribly surprised to hear from Evie because he was sounded sober and Bill had never known him to be in New York City and be sober. 
But he was. But Bill wasn't. Bill was sitting at his kitchen table on a terrible drunk drinking bathtub gin. He thought it was probably his last drunk because the last time he had been to the sanitarium, the good doctor had told him, Bill, if you ever come back here, we're going to have to commit you to the psych ward with alcoholic insanity. And Ebby came and Ebby told this man, Bill Wilson, who is the same Bill Wilson you've been hearing about, the co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous. And he told Bill of what he had heard from Roland. Well, a few weeks later, Bill, as was prophesied, it was expected, ended up back in the sanitarium. And while his wife was down in the office hearing the doctor explain to her the necessity to commit Bill to a psych ward probably for the rest of his life, Bill had the spiritual experience that I'm sure you have all read about in Bill's story in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. You see why it is that we in AA don't believe in coincidences, but do believe in miracles? Bill Wilson stayed sober from the day of that spiritual experience. Though Ebby, who was the carrier of the message, spent years trying to get his sobriety. And that's the way the percentage worked, and I think still works, about 50% the first time. Anyway, to get back to where we were with counting of these people, as I told you, the group in New York had made the decision that they no longer could be associated uh, with the Oxford group. They felt they needed to go out on their own. Now, the group in Ohio had not yet reached that conclusion. But when the group in New York decided that, all they had had thus far was the six steps of that they had inherited from the Oxford group. And Bill Wilson felt if they were to keep the ground they had gained and if they were to continue to grow, uh, they needed more spiritual principles having to do with alcoholism. And one evening after dinner, he fixed himself a place on the bed, he propped himself up, and in about 30 minutes, an outline of what we now know as the 12 steps of recovery was written. Bill said his hands held the pen that wrote the words. In 30 minutes, the first legacy of Alcoholics Anonymous was outlined on a scratch pad. It was refined and many others were called in and things were added and things were changed. But out of that outline came the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And on those spiritual principles, the millions of people who have recovered from this seemingly hopeless state of mind and body had come about as a result of the first legacy. It was not long then after that the Akron and the Cleveland groups also made their withdrawal from the Oxford group, and Alcoholics Anonymous was on its way. And one day they woke up and they had 8,000 members scattered all over the United States, and trouble was really upon them. Each one of those people that had gotten sober had gone out to his own hometown and had tried to start a group of Alcoholics Anonymous without any instructions, without any experience, without any knowledge. And the letter, the only thing they had was a box number in New York to write to. No phone number, no anyone to consult with. 
And the things they begin to hear in the New York office really disturbed them because they saw that the things that were happening in New York and Akron and Cleveland were happening in Chicago and San Francisco and Miami and Dallas and all over. To give you an idea, they wrote to all of these people whom they had an address for and they said, will you please send us the requirements to be a member of your group. And one and all of those were the people that answered them when they had a chance to look at all of them. Uh, they saw that had though all of those rules been in effect, that the first hundred members of Alcoholics Anonymous, not a one of them would have qualified to be a member. And so, Bill Wilson, continuing with his spiritual intuition, knew that we needed a second legacy of Alcoholics Anonymous. Some spiritual principles to guide the groups of Alcoholics Anonymous the way the spiritual principles of the 12 steps made possible the recovery and the maintenance of that recovery of the individual members of Alcoholics Anonymous. You see, one of the reasons that I was drafted to go to Cleveland uh, was that uh, I was hearing what the old-timers, the long-timers in my group were saying. That was people with two more years of sobriety than I had. And uh, they were saying that it was absolutely idiotic uh, that Alcoholics Anonymous, being in existence a short time it was, could possibly have established any traditions. And they told me those people in New York must either be drunk or on a terrible dry drunk, and you go back there and you tell them that's what we said. Well, now I was a young man, 38 years of age, and I was beginning to get well, and I believed everything those people told me. And can you believe it? I went back there and I told those people who had done all these wonderful things that they must be drunk or on a dry drunk. Can you imagine that? It's the truth. Well, those people jumped on me, and they didn't let me up until they had my head on straight. They told me the truth about what was happening in that New York office and what they were hearing. And on that Sunday afternoon in that ballpark in Akron, Ohio, Bill Wilson read to us what we call now the short form of the Twelve Traditions. The Twelve Traditions first appeared in print a year after, a year before I came to AA in the grapevine. And they were written in what we know today as a long form. This man whom I told you about that had started this group in Chicago was real disturbed about the long form of Alcoholics Anonymous and went back to New York. God, I wish I could remember his name. He's dead now. I don't think he'll care whether I remembered it or not. But anyway, he was a man that formed the group, first group in Chicago. He went back and he persuaded Bill that he thought the traditions would be far more acceptable would be much easier to understand and use if Bill could condense them down to a form like the 12 steps. And after much consideration, Bill did that. And that's what was read to us that Sunday afternoon. Now that's raising lots of questions in AA today. And I'm having people ask me, was the long form accepted? Was the short form accepted? Uh, What form were you voting for? And I can tell you that we voted by acclamation. Uh, They said there were 3,000 of us in that ballpark. 
I thought they counted a lot of shadows, but at the time it looked to me like 300,000. I couldn't imagine that many sober alcoholics all in one place at one time. My opinion is, for whatever it's worth, I think that those of us who voted that Sunday thought we were voting for both the long and the short form. And that's what we've had in all our publications ever since. Uh, the 12 and 12 that was uh, published five years later carries and discusses both the long and the short form. Anyway, that's how the second legacy of Alcoholics Anonymous came into being. And on that same Saturday, Friday and Saturday and Sunday that we were hearing mostly speeches by Bill, Dr. Bob was there but was too sick to address the convention. He was dying of cancer and died that fall. But anyway, the talks we heard were not just about the second legacy. Bill told us that he felt sure with the rapid growth that Alcoholics Anonymous was experiencing and our singleness of purpose that we were going to have to have some kind of organization in order to establish the service that would continue to carry the message that this was indeed a curable disease from which one could recover. You see, those people that were in Alcoholics Anonymous up to that time firmly believed to their innermost self that they were indeed selected people and that God had chosen them and they had affected their recovery because God wanted this message carried. They had no idea when they first started this thing how many people there were out there. But my God, when there began to be some publicity, they could see. And they had some tremendous ideas. Those people weren't all uh, the successes that they were uh, because they were a bunch of dummies. But some of their ideas were pretty grandiose. <laughs> they imagined a string of hospitals owned by Alcoholics Anonymous around the world. Uh, they imagined that they would educate disciples and send them out to educate the public, the press, uh, the wardens, uh, and so on. They had tremendous ideas, and they all took money, and they didn't have any money. But uh, whatever they tried, they failed at. But every time they tried to carry the message, they succeeded. So it became apparent that that's what they were intended to do and that somebody else could open the hospitals and somebody else. And there was a lady and she was at that Cleveland, that uh, Cleveland convention. And she isn't for good reason, but she isn't near mentioned enough in the history of Alcoholics Anonymous. And even though my time is getting short, I just must, in all good conscience, tell you a little bit about this lady. This was the lady who was the first woman to come to a group in New York, get and stay sober the rest of her life. She was brought there by her psychiatrist, Dr. Tebow, from his sanitarium in Connecticut. She used to visit him two or three times a year to get sobered up and well enough to get back out. In those days, she was a great exception. She was a very successful businesswoman. This woman came to Alcoholics Anonymous, as I told you, and stayed sober. And in 1944, established the National Council on Alcoholism. Now, those of you who are history buffs know I'm talking about Marty Mann, and I'm not breaking her anonymity. She didn't know what that was. <laughs> but she was able to do a 
and we can be as indebted and as grateful to her as we can anyone in Alcoholics Anonymous because she was able to form another organization and go do what Alcoholics Anonymous was not able to do. She educated the press. She educated the educators. She educated the wardens. She educated the sheriffs and the police chiefs. She educated anyone and everyone that would listen with the National Council on Alcoholism. This woman traveled abroad three times a year carrying this message around the world that this disease of alcoholism for which there was no cure could be treated and there was a way to recover. Her name is Marty Mann. This lady persuaded me to come back to New York from Cleveland. She wanted to open an office west of the Mississippi. In those days, the United States has had two sections. All the intellectuals, all the money, all the smart people lived east of the Mississippi. The Indians and the cowboys and the so on uh, lived west of the Mississippi. Uh, she wanted an organization west of the Mississippi. There was only one school at that time. It was conducted by the man who brought her to AA. It was a seven-week course at Harvard or Yale called the Yale Studies on Alcoholism. She made it possible for me to go there uh, that year. I came back to see her in 1951 and had the good fortune to be in New York when the first General Service Conference was held. I had been very busy the year before. Uh, the instruction to Bill Wilson, to all of us who were in Cleveland, was to go home and organize state committees and be ready for whatever it was that he had in mind for us, that he was going to ask us to come back to New York to talk about a third legacy in 1951. That first conference was the most unusual, of course, of all the conferences that have ever been held. Those people arrived there without an agenda, didn't know what the world was wanting from them. But they were able to see the necessity, the work that was being done in that little New York office. They were able to make some constructive criticism. They were even able to offer some ideas New York hadn't thought of. And it was decided that this conference would be held for five years on a trial basis. And either it would success or fail in those five years. And now we're talking about the third legacy of Alcoholics Anonymous. Well, that year, 51, I came back to, I lived in Kansas City in those days. And before 1952, had you really gotten started, my road of destiny had taken a big leap. It took me from Kansas City to Las Vegas, Nevada. I left more recovering alcoholics in my home group in Kansas City than there were estimated in the whole state of Nevada when I got there. They had two meetings a week one in a home on Tuesday nights and one at a Methodist church on Friday nights. And I asked right away to meet the, the man. I wanted to know where's the firehouse? Where is, are things happening? By this time I was pretty well and I had a lot of ambition and ideas. So I met the man. I said to him, how is it that I don't hear anything about forming a committee here in order to uh, enroll the state in, the, in this general service conference idea? Now this was in the meeting room. He said, Dan, come outside. I want to talk to you a minute. Now this was a man, too, with two more years of sobriety than I had. And he said to me, uh, Dan, let me tell you about 
AA in Las Vegas, Nevada. He said, we have two newspapers here and we run a little one ad in each, a little ad in the classified section of each newspaper. Uh, we have a paid telephone answering service. Uh, and we have two meetings a week. And we have everything we need except for New York to mind their own goddamn business. <laughs> well, uh, that wasn't so strange to hear in those days. You can still hear it today at some of the places I go. <laughs> but it sure told me uh, uh, what it was I better do. So uh, I laid low for a little while, and one night I was at a meeting, and a man introduced himself as being from Las Vegas, from uh, Reno, Nevada. Now, for you people who don't know your geography, let me tell you about Nevada. From Las Vegas to Reno, it's about 500 miles, and in those days, it isn't that way now, but in those days, about all there was between in that 500 miles was sand dunes, jackrabbits, and roadhogs. Uh, so we were really divided in the state of Nevada. But I invited him for coffee after the meeting, and I found out he believed as I believed, and he went back with the idea of offering the groups in Reno an opportunity to organize for general service. And I began to come out of the closet in Las Vegas, and between the two of us, by 1955, we had a state committee, and we were ready to elect a delegate. Well, now there had been a lot of things said about the work that he and I was doing and perhaps about some of our motives, and so we decided it would be best if neither one of us made ourselves available. We did decide, though, and we didn't have <laughs> uh, any group conscience on this, we decided we knew best for them. Uh, we decided we would flip a coin to see. We said that we would have one delegate one year from uh, southern Nevada, and two years later we would have a delegate from northern Nevada, and we flipped a coin to see who would be first. I don't know whether southern Nevada won or lost, but they had the first delegate, and uh, so the groups went around choosing one. About this time in Las Vegas, they were having... A tremendous growth. Reynolds Electric had come in there and established the atomic test site 90 miles north of Las Vegas. And uh, there were all of the offices and all that there were there. And there was a lot of people working up at this test site from all over the United States. But by far the majority of them were from Southern California. And not a one of them was willing to expose his, his being in Alcoholics Anonymous for fear of losing his Security clearance. They were, things weren't quite as well understood in those days. Those people at that test site used to drive 90 miles on Friday night after work to come to Las Vegas to a meeting and then drive 90 miles back to their test site to be ready to go to work the next morning at 7 o'clock. They were working two 12-hour shifts a day there. Among them was a young man from Southern California who had a very good gift of gab. And um, anyway, uh, I don't know how much variety he's had. It was never sure. Uh, but he was chosen to be our first delegate. And he was to represent the state of Nevada in 1955 in St. Louis, Missouri, where the second International Conference of Alcoholics Anonymous was to be held. It's the only time the General Service Conference has ever met outside of the city of New York where our office is. But the main reason for this was the third legacy was to come into being. In St. Louis, the torch of the reins were to be passed from the founders of Alcoholics Anonymous to the members of Alcoholics Anonymous. Well, this young man that was to be our first delegate, in those days you had to fly from Las Vegas to Los Angeles and then get a plane to St. Louis. And uh, apparently he had some allergy. 
And on that plane from Los Angeles to St. Louis, uh, that uh, red eye, they were serving something that triggered his allergy. He never got to the conference. He got drunk, that's what he got. And God, my God, you can't believe what that did to that group of people in Nevada that had worked so hard. Fortunately, it was my good fortune to be able to attend that weekend, and it is the most, the most tremendous experience I've had either in or out of AA in my life. I cannot even attempt to give you a picture of it. I'll just tell you a little bit about what I sensed and felt. But on that stage, on that Sunday afternoon in St. Louis, Missouri, in that auditorium without any air conditioning, and the humidity was two degrees higher than the temperature, on that stage sat our General Service Conference. On that stage sat most of the original members of Alcoholics Anonymous and their non-alcoholic friends that had been with them through this whole 15 years. 10 years. And most of all, I saw on that stage our co-founder Bill Wilson and an empty chair where we all accepted the spirit of our other co-founder, Dr. Bob. And Bill was there. On his right was Lois, his wife, who had been very active in all of AA's activities up till then. On his other side sat his mother, who was attending the first Alcoholics Anonymous function of her lifetime. Also on that stage was Bill's sponsor, Ebby, and he was sober. But there were, I can't begin to tell you all, California was represented. We had our doctor, our first California doctor in AA was there. But there were many non-alcoholics who had been such good friends of AA up to that time. Now, time will not permit me to go any further with that, but if you're really interested, it is all in here, including the major addresses that were given. And I'm sure you will be better off for the knowledge and to have it and to share it in a way that I can't share with you this evening. Men like Monsignor Dowling and men like Bernard Smith, who had been such a good friend from the beginning and the chairman of our conference for the first five years. Read those people's speeches. It will make you proud and happy. And it will give you a broader vision of what it is we really mean by service. That's what was there and happened that day. And all of the inheritances and each one of you that is a member of Alcoholics Anonymous have inherited from the things that I've been telling you about. You inherited your second legacy the spiritual principles that in 60 years have kept us united. Not in 60 years has there ever been a serious breach in Alcoholics Anonymous because we practice the spiritual principles of those 12 traditions. And in 1955, when that, that torch passing, I call it, when that 
Sunday afternoon in St. Louis, when the founders of Alcoholics Anonymous passed the torch and passed the responsibility of Alcoholics Anonymous to the members of Alcoholics Anonymous. Remember, if you haven't been reminded lately, that you are a part of the most unique organization this world has ever known. We have no elected officials. We have no rules. Anyone is a member who says there are, and no one can tell you that you aren't. You, each one of us, individually, is Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's what happened on that Sunday afternoon in St. Louis. My, I wish I had time to share more with you. I hope I have shared enough that you will read what's available to you. And now I'd like to take just a moment, just a moment to speak a couple of words to those of you in the audience who are indeed members now or have at some time been a part of this tremendous third legacy of Alcoholics Anonymous service. We want to acknowledge you. You know who you are. In fact, I would like to offer a toast to you. I would like to say to you, I would like to tell you, for all of the people in AA who wanted to and intended to, but never got around to saying it, thank you. And I would like to say to you, for all of the people who wanted to but couldn't, we love you. And I would like to say to you, I think those who are no longer with us would want me to say to you that you stood fast by the principle and saw to it that our common welfare must always come first. And you passed the torch to your successors with us all still united. I think they would want me to tell you, well done. And I'd like to offer to you people who are just starting in service or are still preparing yourself to get into service, please follow the very clear example that has been set for you and carry this torch of service with the respect and dignity that it so justly deserves. And fulfill your commitment with love and humility. And if you do, then the hand of Alcoholics Anonymous, the loving, the compassionate, the understanding hand of Alcoholics Anonymous will always be there when anyone, anywhere, reaches out for help. And now to all of you in this audience, I would like to again say to you, what an honor and what a privilege I feel it has been for me to be here with you tonight. And to you I would like to say, it is my prayer for you that as each one of you individually continue to trudge your happy road of destiny,
that you will stay in the light of the Spirit and continue to share in your loving God's bountiful gifts and blessings. God bless Alcoholics Anonymous and God bless each of you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.